Welcome to this episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Mark Whitlock, adjunct lecturer at, in Columbia University's Negotiations and Conflict Resolution Program. His research and practice examine identity-based political violence and decision-making, emphasizing operational early warning and response. You can find his full bio on the page for this episode. So, you know, this is, um, as I said, you know, we were talking before, mm -hmm. perhaps we can take it from there in terms of you know, we are experienced in particular. Let's go back to Ramla. Sure. <laughs> uh, what, what was, in fact, what did you experience? What, what have you gathered mm -hmm. from that exercise? Absolutely. Well, the, I guess the key theme that emerged for me and my background and interest was around identity. What, what is identity? What is identity-based conflict? And before I arrived in Ramleh, I guess from a scholarly perspective, my personal experiences emerged from um, an American Peace Corps stint in West Africa. Uh -huh. I was in Ghana for two years, about 17 years ago now. And it was really the first time that I started to question what is political identity? What does that uh -huh. mean? Not from a scholarly perspective, mm -hmm. but from a practitioner on the ground experiencing that. Ghana was going through a period of dem democratic transition and they had an election in 2000. And I was watching in my village the democratic politicking that was going on uh -huh. and the use of identity in that context. So I, I guess it started to make me think from a scholarly perspective, what does this mean without having had the training? And then next door in Cote d'Ivoire, this was the period when things really were falling apart, for lack of a better term, in Cote d'Ivoire. And identity politics were one of the uh, majority tools or major tools, mm -hmm. excuse me, that the various political elite were using within that context. And Cote d'Ivoire eventually uh, went off the deep end and they went into the Civil War, but it was around these specific issues. And then I went to study this specific issue at Columbia as a graduate student because I was interested in ideas around nationalism, identity, political violence. And as part of that process over four or five years, it eventually led me to this Romley project. Uh -huh. We wanted to explore what does identity mean in the context of not Israeli-Palestinian in the traditional sense, but what does it mean to be um, an Arab Israeli who lives in Romley? Right? And about, I think, 20% of the population in Romley identifies as Arab, and within that you have Muslim and Christian populations. But what I learned during the trip was this idea of monolithic Jewish identity is, is a bit of a myth as well when you speak to people in Ramleh. Because we determined, not determined, but when we spoke to different people, it was a very different experience in Ramleh to be an Ethiopian Jew as opposed yeah. to be an Ashkenazi Jew who was descended from long ago when, when they arrived in Israel. So there was even you know, social and class stratification within um, Ramleh Jewishness. That's right. Yes. That's right. That's right. No, yeah, absolutely right. That is, you know, identity-based, uh, you know, approaches obviously is the way to look at it. There's no question. But there are other elements that impact on that. That is, you can identify that. Mm -hmm. But they have, uh, in my view, I also to ask the question in terms of what other elements, social, economic, mm -hmm. political, religious, mm -hmm. that is impacting on the identity. Yes. And to what extent you can actually began to solve a conflict or prevent one from developing, where do you begin that kind of process? Yes. I mean, so your experience in this area is going to be very interesting. Mm -hmm. that is because you cannot change your identity. Mm -hmm. You can only adjust. Mm -hmm. And the level of adjustment is going to determine the success of the failure mm -hmm. of being able to coexist peacefully with one another. To the extent, to what extent they were willing or able to make that adjustment. Ramla is a community that has 
They had Jews and Arabs mm. and Druze and others. Mm. Uh, but by and large, it's been peaceful. Mm -hmm. But there is a hidden, the the hidden feelings, or what might call it, the psychological difficulties of making the complete adjustment and saying, you know, we are one community, regardless of our identity base. Yes, and one of the elements that you hit upon this idea of competing narratives as well. That's right. When we would host one of the professors that I worked with, she's an expert in communication and conflict resolution. And she hosted community events where people from these various groups came and they spoke about their idea, excuse me, their experience within Romley. And it was very interesting to see them actually map out what you're speaking about right now. We did a conflict analysis and we looked at the actors, the structures, the dynamics that exist within Romley as a city, but also largely within the region. And it was quite fascinating to see how people from various identity groups mapped out what their experience was. And for some, it was quite eye-opening or enlightening to think, or let me give you an example, an actual concrete yeah, yeah, anecdote. Yeah, yeah. One of the um, women in our group was a young um, Ethiopian woman who had immigrated as a child to Romley, and she had served in the IDF. And when she spoke, she had a very, very negative experience through that, dealing with what she considered to be exclusion within the IDF. And we had another woman from Romley who had been a commander in the IDF, and she said, I specifically made sure that I never discriminated against Ethiopians who are within the IDF. So watching them have a conversation with each other about what it meant to be Jewish within Romley was very, very interesting for me. And coming from an outside perspective where I hadn't experienced that at all or hadn't studied about that, especially in the West and the U.S., we have, a, uh, I think, a specific image that's portrayed within the media about what it means to be Jewish, what it means to be Palestinian in the Israeli-Palestine context. And being on that journey really made me realize that there's so many stories and so many narratives that aren't necessarily um, heard because of because of the, the um, existing yeah, and you know, I mean, uh, my experience actually in the Israeli army uh, was rather revealing as far as I was concerned. Mm -hmm. Well, they were all Jews, you know, all Jews. Everybody was Jewish, but they were Jews from Middle East, mm -hmm. and Jews from European communities, and Jews from Latin America and South America mm -hmm. and elsewhere. And notwithstanding the fact that the military itself was a sort of the the, the part. Uh, at, uh, at a melting pot mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that presumably is or was the melting pot. What we we'll sense, we still sense discrimination in terms of the there's a Jewish identity, but with but with that comes also certain prejudices in terms of if you are Ethiopian Jew versus if you are a Polish Jew, mm -hmm. and that impact on on the individuals involved in terms of advancement within the military. Mm -hmm. That is, they just, the prejudices exist, even though you maybe identify with the same cause or mm -hmm. having your own identity, being a Jewish, which is, a, which is an overall a common identity of everyone. Yes. But then there were these differences that impacted on the behavior of the individuals involved. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we could see clear discrimination. Mm -hmm. That is, the military discriminated against Jews of Middle Eastern or Sardic background versus Jews who came from European community. Yes. Almost regardless of merit. Interesting. Which is it's a very interesting phenomenon. I personally experienced that, as a matter of fact. I spent a lot of time in the military, um, but I ended up doing something else related, mm -hmm. which is very interesting too. So, so going back to your point, uh, where this is, where this lead to? That is even identifying the difference in terms of identity-based differences that's taking place. 
how do you ameliorate that? What do you go about? Oh, that's a good question. Obviously, education. Mm -hmm. What your experiment, your experiment is suggesting, that has its obviously strong element yes. to ameliorate this identity differences, mm -hmm. identity-based differences. What has been your experience as far as that's concerned? Well, you mentioned the earlier paper that we'd written about creating these simulations for mass atrocities and genocide. And we did that specifically to address the education issue. This wasn't policy oriented yeah. and it wasn't prescriptive in the context that we are trying to forecast or predict or create a model. It was an attempt to get students who are going to go into the world of human rights, NGOs, diplom diplomacy, international relations to try to unpack using a conflict analysis. What are the underlying issues, the root causes of the things that you're talking about? And there's, I mean, there's a broad literature on, um, the extent to which identity is manipulable, especially in the realm of nationalism. I'm not an expert on that literature, but my experience with these trainings has, I've done these trainings in Africa, I've done them in Europe, and I've done them with the State Department in the U.S. I remember one time we had a group of visiting Congolese parliamentarians from DR Congo, and these were, they were all brought to New York as part of a State Department visit, and we had a mix of political scientists, um, lawyers, activists from the, the communities who were now in the parliament in Kinshasa, and when we put them through Country X, the um, that's mentioned in the article, it was based on five or six case studies. So it's an amalgamation of identity-based case studies around violence. And as we put them through the simulation, several of them remarked, well, this is Congo. You obviously base this upon the Congo. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was somewhat rewarding in one sense to say these sorts of issues emerge everywhere. It could be Ramle in Israel. It could be mm -hmm. um, the Kibus in eastern Congo. It could be in Guatemala. We also had a Guatemalan um, military colonel who had been involved in the counterinsurgency. And he said, this looks like Guatemala. But yes. the point is that using a basic framework around actor structures, dynamics, and trying to explore identity, I don't know if I have an answer to how you ameliorate it. What my interest is, is trying to unpack and understand what the root causes are of these specific conflicts. And then from that, maybe giving people a better um, framework for understanding what could be done to address those issues. And also not to be um, susceptible to specific propaganda from political entrepreneurs who use that as a tool to divide people. Yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, the, what, what you're suggesting is absolutely useful and necessary. But the question is, how do you take it to the, 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 the decision makers? Oh, that's a great question. How do you yeah. take it to the, that is, from my experiences, now, we can sit with a group. I sat recently in Brussels with the Palestinian Israelis group, mm -hmm. uh, two separate things. Argue, let's, let's talk about the future of Jerusalem, for example, which was actually the case, to see if they can negotiate solution this is before Trump's mm -hmm. announced you know that has a great big announcement about the future of Jerusalem. But and what we realize, you know, they could actually come to a consensus. Mm -hmm. But the, the there was a still underlying concern or suspicion. That is even though they can agree on a formula, in the back of their mind they still find it difficult, if not impossible. To, to implement it. Yes. Now, here we come, can you in fact, you talk about identity manipulation, mm -hmm. that is you can identify with the cause. So let's say both sides can identify with the cause of finding a solution. That's a mutually beneficial mm -hmm. solution. And they say can identify with that cause. But when it comes to their identity as such, yes. that is in the way, that stands in the way of a of getting to that point. Absolutely. It's the question of yeah. to what extent is that um, negotiable, that point negotiable. Yeah. Yes. That's what you are experiencing that because from my perspective, yes, 
I can get the people to see the light, mm -hmm. to agree, because it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because perhaps there is no other practical option, but then you cannot get them to say, okay, well, let's move on. Sure. What are these breaks? Well, the question might be, do we even have the capacity to do that? We can, you know, you can lead the horse to water, as they say, yeah, for the, the right. cliche. But one of the things that I found very useful in my experience has been the idea of scenarioing futures. Mm -hmm. We spoke about this before we started recording, the yeah. idea of using a counterfactual analysis and what would have been different if you had chosen this path. And some people in political science specifically, they, they, they poo-poo that idea. They don't think that it makes much sense. It's just post it's what it's hindsight but i think it is a useful tool because it allows people as you said during this negotiation process to have a better understanding of what is possible and what avenues haven't necessarily been explored so i think it's it's very useful as a thought experiment but also it can be useful operationally um, one of the things that we have our students do with the simulation at the end we say um, can you give us an idea of how it would have been different if you had written this simulation what were the challenges what were the strengths what were the weaknesses what paths did we not present to you that would have been useful? And nine times out of, I mean, I don't have the actual um, empirical data in front of me, but nine times out of 10, student will always say, our choices were too limited, we were extremely limited. So I play upon that and I say, well, what is possible to build upon that? And it gets to the point where you're saying, you can get them to agree on it, but then how do you implement it? The implementation, I think, is the most difficult element, especially yeah. when you have spoilers who don't want the status quo to change. Right, that, because they're benefiting exactly. from that significantly. Uh, that's that is the other point, and specifically when we talk about radicalization, mm -hmm. and 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 here they hold on to uh, a ideology mm -hmm. that has not necessarily proven to be practical with a, with a, that would have sustainable results. Mm -hmm. That is, if we look historically speaking as a group, radical rather group, with some exceptions, uh, take ISIS or take uh, Al Qaeda or take other jihadis, various groups. Mm -hmm. So they have this particular ideology, and with that they attach certain identity. This is the identity, mm -hmm. you know. So the, to, toward which the youth, they want the youth to be gravitated toward that, you know, and 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 they have been very successful because they were able to create a model to which that appeals mm -hmm. to, to these young young people who have no other way of identifying with something else. Yes. Now, what is the extent from your perspective when you see this, that is, <clears throat> they have succeeded. They have succeeded up to a point until greater forces were able to do, to be, but the ideology itself mm -hmm. and to which they identify themselves with is not dead and will not die. Yes. So, notwithstanding our experiments in dealing with them and trying to, neg to negotiate or change our narratives or take any kind of approaches, they still, many of them, a majority of them, still never are convinced that there is a solution. Mm -hmm. And then the mission itself becomes, that is the means, become also the objective. Mm -hmm. And so, and as long as they can benefit from the means, they, they push further the objective because they don't want to reach it, if there is one. The, Even if they don't necessarily believe it's possible to achieve that that's, objective. That's right. right? So, is it, I mean, from a rational actor perspective, they might, I'm thinking about like a young man growing up in, is it Malbuk, the part of Brussels where the, yeah. the if, if you just walk through that neighborhood, and it's not dissimilar from walking through parts of New York City, you think to yourself, historically, what opportunity or what access do these people have in this context, right? And I know, again, there's a lot of debate in the literature whether or not 
that is a determinant of radicalization. But um, in terms of the, like the solutions to that, I think it would be a very attractive opportunity because it empowers you, it gives you access to um, a community. And if you've been, um, I guess, marginalized vis-a-vis -vis the, the Belgian government in the country over 30, 40 years, the Moroccan community, whatever it may be, I can see that, that why that would be an attractive thing. Because if I have three or four um, options, and that's the one that I haven't tried before that might empower me, I can see that would, why it would be an attractive option. Not understanding what the consequences of it are, of course. Not right. only for you, but for your family back in um, Brussels when the, the people return. The problem here, that's what I want to you know, discuss further, is that prevention actually can succeed. Yes. Uh, like we mentioned earlier, uh, provided there are not other elements that continuously impede change for the better. So if it, we're talking about radicalization, that is, you can in fact create a scenario that you, by which you can suggest, here's an outlet, here's a solution. Mm -hmm. But the condition that exists prevent that from actually happening, even though there is a clear path. Yes. That is, if you, as long as you have social economic condition, lack of education, lack of healthcare, no matter no matter what you do, however sense you might make for individuals to change direction, these conditions are preventing them from taking that leap, mm -hmm. and they stick to what they know best. So should, then, should the policies to address this be directed to those specific conditions that don't allow the path to be revealed? That's the, that's the point. That is, prevention can work mm -hmm. only in conjunction with, with the changing conditions. Mm -hmm. That is, prevention has limitation as long as these conditions continue to prevail, specifically social economic, mm -hmm. uh, not to speak of uh, expression and uh, sure. neg negligence, no education, no health care, etc. So if you don't change this, how do you, are you going to be able to relate to the individual and say, well, this is a better path? That's prevention, in my view, is connected to that. It's a temporal question yeah, as yeah. well. Um, when I think of conflict prevention as opposed to mass atrocities prevention, I always, and I get, you know, I get feedback on this, but I think that what you're speaking about is what Galton referred to as structural violence. Mm -hmm. So all of those non-physical violence, non-physical violence elements that prevent a young man in Malbec, for example, from experiencing the full opportunity of being Belgian, education, access to healthcare, community, whatever it may be, belonging. Um, that's one element of early warning, but for me, that's early warning for conflict that could emerge. Early warning for mass atrocities and mass violence is once that structural violence has already led into physical violence. So the conflict exists already, the violence exists already. Here we take, you know, take the ISIS phenomenon, mm -hmm. which is really, uh, it fits perfectly to what we are talking about here. And that is, could that be prevented? Mm -hmm. Well, theoretically, you could have said, well, had the Iraq war went differently, perhaps ISIS would not, would not have been given birth. That's the counterfactual, yes. Okay. So there, there, even if we were able to foresee and try to prevent that from happening, uh, we, we weren't able to, to do that. But I want to go back to your point of mass, mass killing or, or, or genocide, genocide in, yes. this, in this particular context. Yes. So what happened here, when you have this rampant resistance, resentment, and a level of hopelessness that is naturally lead to violent resistance at one mm -hmm. point or another. At some point, yes. And violent resistance, if it's not contained, 
is going to lead to more and more mass killing. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what happened with ISIS. Yes. At least initially. Yes. That is, nobody was in a, even though we knew it's a way to prevent that, but we move from one step to another and we end up with ISIS actually killing indiscriminately. Yes. Uh, although you might call it genocide, mm -hmm. albeit on a certainly mass killing. Small yes. mass killing. Yes. So that is, so, mm -hmm. so it starts with initial basic mm -hmm. resentment mm -hmm. and moving gradually into actual action into actual mass killing so if i were if we were with our students and we were doing a thought experiment and we asked them to do a conflict analysis actually i had a student at columbia last term that did this she looked at the growth of isis and how it emerged and again i'm not an expert on the specific um, context of isis but i said where does early warning begin with isis and we had an interesting and by you know kind of a vibrant debate about do we do it within the last two years? Is it the fall of the Saddam regime? Does it go back to the end of the Ottoman mandate throughout the region? At what point does the marginalization and the structural violence that we're talking about lead toward physical violence that could become a mass atrocity or mass killing? And we came to the conclusion that we probably should focus on the area under um, Assad when Sy the modern Syrian state, or post that, but when, when Assad was in um, power and the, also the Ba'athist regime in Iraq next door. You could argue that over a 50, 60 year temporal time frame, that's where conflict early warning for ISIS should have begun during that period. And you know, as a matter of fact, well, I mean, most people think that ISIS started that phenomenon was three or four years ago, mm -hmm. but obviously it started much, much earlier. And I think sure. almost, uh, almost immediately in the wake of the Iraq war, within, within a year, mm -hmm. there was military personnel from the Saddam. But when, I would even go back further and argue that, no, that the Shia-Sunni divide in Iraq... real manifestation. Yes. The roots yeah. go much further, much back, much further than that. That is the root causes. That is, it manifested itself in 2014. Mm -hmm. It's sort of galvanized, mm -hmm. and that has a body and a feature and an objective, and, and, uh, and they moved on. it. But before that, they can go, of course, to Afghanistan, and you go beyond that. And as a matter of fact, I take it a little further than that, and I go back decades, and I agree with you, we go back decades, uh, because the phenomenon of radicalization and uh, violent extremism, it did not start with the Iraq war. And it goes beyond that. You take the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, provide the perfect example of how radicalism within the, the two sides have feed, been feeding into the radicalism frenzy that is now is also sweeping the region. So even if you identify the steps that can prevent this chain reaction from resistance to resentment to, to limited violence to explosion to mass killing, yes. you need to go far enough to look at the, the root causes. Mm -hmm. And, and what is your experience with that? It's funny you asked that question because I was going to ask you just now, what has been your experience with that? I'll tell you. <laughs> well, I will tell you as well. So the last four years, I was fortunate enough to be working between New York and Dakar in West Africa and Senegal. And I did some research both with the UN in West Africa, their regional office, but also I did some work with the African regional organizations, the African Union ECOWAS, SADC. And when I spoke to the elite decision makers at these levels, um, they always said the same thing. They said, you know, you give me all this early warning. I think I know what's going to happen, but so what? It's the decision-making element. How do I take what we think is going to happen over the next six months, and then you give me viable policies that allow me to address that? But getting to the point of the, the way I'm trying to link this is I think we still do a very, very poor job 
of basic conflict analysis and understanding what the root underlying causes are of why this event occurred last week or whatever it may be. Um, we don't necessarily know what the triggers are, even when we do a good conflict analysis. We say, mm -hmm. okay, we think that something bad could happen here and these are the uh, potential scenarios. And in the military and in the government, generally it's three scenarios, right? You get the status quo, best case, and worst case. One of the arguments that I'm trying to make in the research I'm doing now is with the advancements that we have in machine learning and artificial intelligence and forecasting and predictive analytics, we should do a much better job of building much more sophisticated um, and diverse scenarios for what we think could happen. Mm -hmm. You know, the argument about the black swan that Talib makes, Nicholas Nassim Talib, um, we didn't see the black swan coming, no one could have predicted it. And I would argue that we should get to a point where we know almost everything other than the black swan that could occur. Not to say that it's going to happen with 80 to 90% accuracy, because I don't know if we're ever, we will ever be that good, but we should, in all of these contexts, have a very strong and real-time conflict analysis that is updated. Like more in a, let me give you an example. If I were um, an undersecretary in the State Department right now, I don't know how they operate because I've never interviewed anyone from the State Department. I'm much mm -hmm. more familiar with the UN and yeah. the international, and also the um, EAS with the European Union. But if I'm directing a division, every single morning, I would want to have a real-time dashboard for the specific area of interest, my area of operations. I would want to know the social, economic, political, and security elements. I would want that linked to all of the media that's coming out of the region. I would want that linked to my assets on the ground that are reporting to me. Open source, of course, it wouldn't be from the intelligence community. But using all of that information, that can paint a picture of what's going on in the region. Um, you might give me a six to eight week time horizon as well of what could happen, but I want also to know, so what, what can I do with that? Where's my leverage point? What's the center of gravity and how can I, as whatever my role may be, we teach this to the students that are going into the diplomatic force, what role can I play that can somehow have leverage over what's occurring and how do they and I report that back to my specific capital? Um, with actionable things, right? That's the so what question. What are the three or four policies that I might be able to implement that could act in the context of prevention? Because we have the early warning already. We think something's going to happen. But um, the elites always say, if this happens, what do I do with it? You haven't given me a set of decision options that allow me to do that. So that's the decision-making element of early warning. We're trying to link early warning to early action or early response. And Early warning is not that interesting. The response isn't that interesting. The gap that exists in the literature and the practice is the um, early action. How do you link warning to response? Right. You're, you're right. I mean, you can create it theoretically. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you are able to do that. Then comes the human dimension here. That is, to what, to what extent the human dimension is going to impact on any model we can develop. Yes. And to what extent we have to take that into consideration, what actually impact, that is, what constitutes a human element that is certainly not shared by everyone. Everybody has a different kind mm -hmm. of thinking, of ideas, mm -hmm. of mindset, yeah. of perception. How do we, in fact, find a, a solution, or not a solution, but a model mm -hmm. that actually is more applicable to a larger group of different background, of different identity? Absolutely. And that is what is missing, in mm -hmm. my view. And in in most of the criticisms that people make around agent-based models and simulations, they focus on complexity, what you're saying. It's too complex and your model can't capture all of this complexity and the idea of endogeneity. But how do you know when one of the specific actors that you think is going to do one thing does something, I mean, especially in the context of the current president, right, in the United States. Right. If you're a psychological profiler for a specific government, we know all of the intelligence apparatus all around the world do this. They look at the psychology, psychological profile of each one of these leaders. How do you know what sort of prediction can be that accurate when 
it's seen as a loose cannon. A rational actor person would say, well, no, every every action is rational, right? right. What Kim Jong-un did this morning was very rational, even though we might report it in the U.S. as being a crazy action. It was driven by some sort of means. There's a goal or an objective at the end of that. And it might even be something as simple as, hey, pay attention to us this morning, so we fire a missile. And tweeting or not, not tweeting or responding to that is also a way of signaling now in okay. a traditional so sense. It's a newer simulation that's in this. Have you, to what extent do you incorporate that element, which is not quantified? You cannot really quantify how this uh, human, human uh, you know, taking Trump mm -hmm. as an example, mm -hmm. the unpredictability, mm -hmm. the prejudices, the, um, you have the emotional investment made in any specific mm -hmm. area, um, um, real or perceived kind of commitment you have. You have to have all of these elements that I possess, you possess, mm -hmm. and we now try, it's, it, it's, it's there. How do we balance that? Now you can create all the scenarios you want, but you can still have to take these conditions mm -hmm. and interject them into these scenarios and to see where they're going to lead to. Yes. To what extent, and from your experience, fine, if you apply these conditions, the human elements, mm -hmm. into it, uh, to what extent that's going to change, A, the process, yes. and B, the outcome? Well, we actually cheat. We cheat a little bit on this question. <laughs> in the, the, because, again, our model is not used. It's not a, a model to predict. And actually, it's not even a model. It's a narrative, essentially. Uh -huh, uh -huh. One of the, my co-author, um, the one that we, um, when we wrote it together, he, he framed it as a sort of a choose your own adventure, which isn't uh, rigorous at all, I understand. Right, right. But one of the way, when we showed this to some of the political scientists at Columbia, they said it would be very interesting if you could game the system a little bit because it is narrative. It's also deterministic, excuse me, it's, um, it's deterministic in the sense that there is no computation, there's no computer algorithm. I've written seven to eight different story arcs or narratives, and we game the students into that based upon the decisions they make. So if there are three actors and three decisions at each turn, I think you have 81 potential outcomes, but there aren't 81 potential outcomes mathematically in the system. I've said based upon this combination and my own bias in the case history, you can end up maybe in four states out of this, this thing. But one of the professors at Columbia said, you know, you ought to just to play with the students a little bit, the unpredictability of specific actors, you should gain, the way he termed it, game a rotten apple, a general, for example, yeah. into the system. And maybe things are going really well in the first two turns. But then suddenly in the third term, the general decides he's not happy, he has a coup d'etat, he overthrows the government, or he ramps up the counterinsurgency against one of the co-ethnic groups. And we've played with that a lot, and it's very frustrating to the students because they feel like they've been cheated. It's not a rule of the game that they thought they were playing. But then the learning that we have is, well, maybe in real life this applies as well. You thought you knew what the rules of the game were, but then the rules changed instantly. How would you respond to that? And the, the what's not it's not important... Um, what their answer is, like the specific policy, what is important is how they describe how they got to that specific policy. Right. Because right. then they have to go back and they have to reassess all of the other actors, all of their interests, all of their needs, all their positions. Right. So For the purpose of our, this podcast, uh, let's take a real, a real example that we're still experiencing. Mm -hmm. And let's see, for example, how we could have dealt with ISIS mm -hmm. had we begin to think in terms of a prevention, sure. actionable uh, you know, methods to mm -hmm. change, to, and then create the will by the politicians to impact it. What, do we, what, what could we have detected? Mm -hmm. When should that have been detected? Mm -hmm. I mean, we have our, our sure. ideas, of so, course. And could we have changed the result if we had this early detection? 
Well, when you're building counterfactuals, the one thing they always say is the simplest rewrite rule. So you don't want to change it so drastically that it doesn't reflect what the conditions were at that moment. It needs to be a small tweak that's feasible that could have actually happened. And popular consensus on this, and again, it's, it's, it's popular in the sense that no one's proven it. Most people go back and say the moment that the United States dissolved Saddam's military, that was the proximate cause of the, the growth of ISIS, right? Because you said the backbone of ISIS were the, the generals from Saddam's military. They were completely excluded from the, I mean, at the time you can make it a They case. were shattered, you know, they right. lost their job overnight. Uh, they had no place to go. And their, their enemy co-ethnic became and, in, and into they, power. That's right. Where they were, you know, they're subjugating the Shia, now they are subjugated mm -hmm. by the Shia. So the point is, it's a zero-sum game and they lost the game completely at that so, point. So here, let's, I just, let's walk through this. Mm -hmm. uh, so the mistake was made. But nobody seemed to think in the United States to think, okay, now we have a created situation. How can we prevent that from escalating? Mm -hmm. What happened there? There was really practically no steps have been taken because dismantling the military apparatus, the bureaucracy and all of that, mm -hmm. basically dismantled Iraq as, as it was known. Yes. And also excluding them from and, future and polity as well. From, so right. Yes. So, so could that have been prevented? That is, after it happened. Yeah, well, after the fact. Well, so after the fact. So what do we do from, because there was no ISIS yet. Mm -hmm. You but also had a, pri a prime minister who, in retrospect, was very chauvinistic as well. Exactly, yes. Maliki, of course. So what happened now? How could we have, could we have prevented, knowing what we know today, mm -hmm. from your... So if I were, if I were, if I yeah. were rerunning that... Yes. Um, I, I want to, can you, let's create a scenario. Sure. Let's see if... Just for mm -hmm. so that the the, the the listeners will have a little uh, meat to chew on. Sure. So, so I would first think about <laughs> the so if if we do it, I guess in actual social science terms, the dependent variable and the independent variable. The dependent variable that we want to prevent was the rise of ISIS, this rise of That's this right. extremist group That's right. um, across borders or across regions. So what are the specific independent variables that could lead? You think about causation or causality. It leads to that dependent variable. I would focus on what we're talking about. You would think about um, the ethnic makeup of the security apparatus, because uh -huh. the security apparatus has been one of the primary reasons that this has um, become the situation that it's become. Um, and we mentioned some of the early elements as well. The, the character, and this gets more into political psychology, the character of the ruling elite. What do we know about the prime minister? Do we have any sort of understanding about his um, willingness to have um, an, an open society in the sense that co-ethnics are or ethnic your co-ethnics as well as non-co-ethnics are part of that future. In the case of Iraq, I guess it would be the three primary groups that are spoken about so often. But here, if I may, mm -hmm. let's stop you for a second. So what happened here? We have created this, uh, dismantled basically the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, we wanted to prevent further chaos. Further, we did. That is the United States what wanted to prevent that from happening. Mm -hmm. So now we introduce a system. What we have introduced in Iraq, that is, election and have an elected government, a democracy of sorts, mm -hmm. we thought that this would be the means by which we can now prevent mm -hmm. further deterioration mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in, in, in Iraq. What happened as a result of that, as a matter of fact, I think the introduction of this kind of political system aggravated rather than resolved mm -hmm. the already discord, serious discord between mm -hmm. the three ethnic groups. So if I had access to, which I never would, or theoretically as a thought experiment, if I had access to all of the elite level decision makers in the U.S. government at that time, I would have been very curious to ask them 
Can you tell us a little bit about your scenarioing and your red teaming for your specific policies in the context of the future of Iraq? And I wonder if anyone within the CIA or within the security apparatus said, we have a scenario where we dissolve the military and within two to three years, there's a raging insurgency in the country and how do we deal with that? And one of the professors I had at Columbia, Ike Wilson, he got into you know, a lot of trouble because he said we had a plan to win the war, but we didn't have a plan to win the peace. And he was on Petraeus' staff in Mosul, but his point was we came in, we did that quickly, that's it. And no one even yeah. thought about what could happen in the next two years in the context of a, a burgeoning insurgency. So, so, so the, the, the lack of, um, the lack of um, let's say, understanding or the inability to gauge mm -hmm. the consequence of what initially happened, which is prevented, mm -hmm. preventive measures to be taken, we take another step further. Mm -hmm. Now, ISIS is in the making, it happened, they started to, there were the atrocities. Was there anything else that could have limited, inhibited that kind of, uh, you know, outrage in which uh, ISIS has been engaged in? Yeah, policy-wise. Yeah. Um, opening or? Before, before they started with their atrocities, Yes. Basically, a mass killing. Yes. That is, what, 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 here we're talking about also political will that you speak mm -hmm. about. You know, mm -hmm. what was missing? And the context of political will with the United States. There was obviously political will from the elite in Washington to intervene, and there wasn't political will for the most part of the international community to intervene in that context with the invasion. Early on. That yes. Yes. Um, so once this began, in the context of the burgeoning insurgency. I might ask students, what's political will now in the context of the debate? The debate is, should we send more troops to put, uh, you know, to, to put a plug into the leaking dam, or should we pull back and let things become even worse? I was at Columbia as a graduate student in that period from 2005 to 2007, and several of my professors actually left our class to go and be part of the surge. Uh -huh. so it was quite fascinating uh -huh. to see the response in real time, but from 2003 to 2005, that wasn't even a conversation that was occurring. Um, the questions you're asking are tough questions. Like, how, how do you go back policy-wise to someone who's uh -huh. interested in policy well, that's exactly and address that specifically? Yeah, that's right. yeah. I think it is useful as a hindsight exercise. The question then becomes, how applicable will it be to, or generalizable to a future case? That's my point. Right. That is, that is all the scenarios we play is that mm -hmm. the idea is to prove, you know, mm -hmm. to go back and say, well, how, to what extent this is applicable? To situation that may still arise. This can also be dangerous as well. I think about all of the literature on uh, analogical or analogous reasoning, and then the classic case is the case of Munich. I was just reading about this a couple months ago. Um, Harry Truman, when he saw um, Korea, his immediate response was, this is Munich, I have to respond immediately. And it talks about the dangers as well of taking incorrect historical lessons. So I think it's much easier to point out the challenges and the failures than it is to take something of that and to produce something that can be used in the future. What I, would, what I would want people to take away from that would be, these are the questions that you should be asking yourself in the six months before, but also in the moment, to think about plausible futures. The plausible future is what's important, and then to create some sort of, not necessarily policy, but policies that would address each one of those scenarios in real time. Yeah. No, they think, of yeah. course, well, absolutely, absolutely right. The question, you know, given, given again the nature of a human being, uh, you can develop all kinds of scenarios, but it's going to be always difficult. Uh, it's impossible to have any kind of scenarios that is applicable in full to any future mm -hmm. conflict that may occur. 
and that is because the cost the dynamics continue to sure well, here's a perfect example i think it could be yeah. useful for our conversation yeah. 12 to 14 months ago let's say 18 months ago now the israelis obviously are experts in scenarios and um, looking forward with it because they have to be um i wonder if there was anyone within the um, Israeli apparatus that was considering what would happen if Trump were elected and when did decide to name Jerusalem the, the capital. And is that something that 18 months ago people even had on the, the radar? And if they did, I wonder what percentage chance they gave it. So they might say as, we think this is what's going to happen. These are the three scenarios. However, let's be exotic and think, you know, red team this and think about an exotic example. What would happen this person were elected, which we don't think it happened, right? No one thought it was going to happen. Even the New York, I took two screenshots of the New York Times the day of the election. I think it was like at 10 o'clock, I was overseas, it was like 10 o'clock that night. It said 93, I'm probably being misquoted, so anyone who's listening can correct me. But it was like 93% Hillary Clinton. Of and course. then when I woke up the next morning, it said, went 100% Donald Trump. So it was, a, it was a disaster in the context of prognostication. But I'm wondering how the Israelis would have put the odds of within 18 months Jerusalem being named the capital by the United well, States. Well, I can tell you what I know, what I know from, you know, the moment, uh, the moment uh, Trump was nominated, uh, there were obviously many contacts beforehand. I mean, he was in Israel, he met with us, you know, and so he, they knew pretty much his thinking. Not necessarily was he going to precisely about Jerusalem and all of that, but he was rather open. And, and that is that is it's in the back of his in his mind. Did they really think he's going actually to take a real action and recognize that? I don't think very few very few people, if any, could come to that particular conclusion. But they were also counting when when Pence was chosen. Mm -hmm. Then there was a more a greater sense of uh, greater confidence that Pence is a guy who may very well be able to push Trump to take this state. Mm -hmm. Because, not because for the love of Israel, or not because of anything else other than to his base, mm -hmm. require that the support for Israel remain unmitigated and, and, and conditional. Yes. Uh, and he was the one, actually, in the last couple of months who exerted the kind of pressure on, the, on Trump mm -hmm. to do it. He said you're going to do it. Do it now, mm -hmm. and that's 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 that really came about. But I think the sense of this Israelis was quite clear going back almost the moment he was not, not he was um, nominated and chose uh, Pence as his vice president. They started to think in terms of this may happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then going forward from now, the next six to twelve to eighteen months, it'll be very interesting to see what the scenarios are within Israel, within the Palestinian um, organization as well, within the U.S. government. I just find it fascinating, not only to scenario, but then to go back and check your scenarios against reality, mm -hmm. see what you got right, what you got wrong. Yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Tetlock's work at the University of Pennsylvania, but his book on expert prognostication, it's such a fascinating book for me because it kind of upends conventional wisdom, mm -hmm. which essentially says that experts are so great you know, predicting everything, but they're really, really bad at predicting rare events or events outside of their interests. So one of the takeaways I have from that is it's not, we don't necessarily need to train people how, how to think, but we need to make them aware of what some of the cognitive blinders are within their analysis and within their forecasting. Yeah, and beyond that, actually, it's, it's what, what you can, in fact, change, mm -hmm. modify what you cannot change, yes. short of uh, catastrophic events. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I applied this method you know, to, from 
in the search for resolution to any conflict, I always ask myself this question. I mean, if I go back to Jerusalem, he created a certain, uh, and I cannot call it a fact, but a certain notion that it is difficult to withdraw from. Mm -hmm. It has been established. It's been established. No new president is going to withdraw that recognition anymore. Mm -hmm. Now the question is going to be for the Israel and the Palestinians in this case, what the Palestinians should do. Is withdrawing from the negotiation is the answer? Obviously, it's not the answer. Mm -hmm. So, what other means? Now, if they create a new fact on the ground, they will have to confront. And their approach, in my view, without getting into it, is wrong so far, mm -hmm. because they focus on the concept rather than on the what actually Trump have said, and they could have interpreted in a manner so that uh, can still as an opening for East Jerusalem to become a capital of the Palestinian mm -hmm. state. And I think they missed. They miss the point and they focus on a negative narrative rather on what they could actually try, you know, generate or from the actual statement where he left mm -hmm. it. The question is open in terms of finally final borders between the two parts of the city. So it's it's uh, it's interesting. But again, you know, here comes again how Netanyahu is dealing with it, how he's interpreting what the step has been taken, which is what Abbas, mm -hmm. uh, where in fact they might maybe. A middle of the ground and another side is willing to. Mm -hmm. Israel does not want to address that because it doesn't serve its interest to address the fact that it's still opening. And for, um, for Abbas, it's been a fait accompli already that he, that he doesn't feel he can change. And this is where the political psychology, I think, is so fascinating of the individual leader. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And to what yeah. extent? To what extent is decision making an individual versus a group versus a? Uh, 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 routine with the bureaucracy. It's quite fascinating. Quite fascinating. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> we 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 can talk about this quite a, a lot. As a, this is fascinating to me mm -hmm. in terms of you know uh, because it's all connected actually to conflict. You know. Yes. Uh, however, uh, insignificant a conflict may be initially, how it evolves uh, over time that lead into this kind of atrocity. It's really fascinating. And the failure of the leadership, mm -hmm. both in terms of policy, in terms of decision-making, mm -hmm. to detect, even when it's detected, that is in advance, but the measures have been taken to prevent. Mm -hmm. or, or not taken as well. Or not taken, yeah. And often we don't know yeah. about those measures until yeah. we're doing the, yeah. the uh, post-mortem, unfortunately, yeah. in the context of a mass atrocity or mass killing episode. Um, the, I worked on a, an African task force project a year or two ago with a, a research center, and this is when we engaged with the regional organizations. And we looked at five cases, one for each of the regional orgs, and we did this. We looked at it from a six-year period, the period before the atrocities began, the period during the atrocities, and post-atrocity. And we tried to understand to what extent the regional organizations had solid early warning, solid operational capacity to respond to the warnings, and the political will to respond. Those are roughly the three pillars of the prevention in the, in the literature. Right. And what we learned was early warning was actually really good. It was really strong across all the organizations because people are always talking about, oh, we need more early warning. No, you don't. The early warning is there. That's right. It's like within an organization, the knowledge exists. You need better knowledge management. Right. right? The second element, operational capacity, there was some variation there. Like the African Union and ECOWAS were very well developed. They have standby brigades, whatever it may be, if you're choosing a military option. But more importantly, they had a very strong diplomatic Mm -hmm. response that was well, yeah. well, the yeah. elders and negotiation. 
Um, and then some that had no capacity at all. But it was that third element that was so interesting. And everyone said the same thing. It was political will. And we would say, define that. What do you mean by that? What is that? And no one could give a really interesting answer. So I think for me, for my own research, the next step is to try to unpack what that means. It's a, a very um, ambiguous, woolly issue. What is political will? What does it mean, this term or this topic? So it's going to be, I think, my next um, goal is to do more about political will in the context of early action. Right. How do you move right. from the early warning right. to the early response yeah. for prevention? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And it applies to everyone. It applies to the potential perpetrators. It applies to the potential victims, the regional organizations, That's all right. the way up to the UNP5 level. That's right. We had political will in Libya, but we didn't have political will in Syria. Why? Why is that? I think I know the answer is why, but I want to unpack well, yeah, why our, it is. Unfortunately, our political will, so if there was one, right. it was half-hearted. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, as far as Libya goes, sure. as Libya would ever be in this mm -hmm. basket case that we know today. That's right. Because the United States, uh, basically, I think President Obama failed to see that uh, um, removing Gaddafi in and of itself and trying to introduce another political system mm -hmm. prematurely was a completely wrong assumption. Well, I would argue there weren't any lessons learned in Iraq in that context, right? <laughs> we didn't invade, but we still removed the leader. And what's I can tell you that the impact, when you speak to the, all of the West African um, and Sahel experts, one of the biggest, the, the, the one thing that they tied, the trigger, the trigger to all the problems with Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb and Boko Haram in Nigeria and throughout the Lake Chad Basin, it was the removal of Muammar Gaddafi that exacerbated all of that throughout the region. And they didn't, the, spill, the spillover and the regional elements, if they knew that in retrospect, I don't think they would have removed. But again, we're playing the guessing game. You would not have removed it Absolutely. I mean, you know, however desperate he might have been, and he was, same thing with Saddam Hussein. In retrospect, we look at Iraq today and we look at Libya today. Would they might have been better off if Saddam Hussein was still there and Gaddafi was still there? And we and we might have been better off had we think differently in terms of early detection, early prevention, and move to change the political processes in these countries on a much slower pace. Absolutely. And to prevent the Egypt as well. Egypt. Absolutely. To prevent that political revulsion. I can remember um, after the um, Egyptian, I think it was just after the Arab Spring, Jack yeah. Snyder up at Columbia, he, he gave a presentation and people were talking about early elections in Egypt. And he said, wow. no, we shouldn't do early elections That's in Egypt. Absolutely. We should allow the Muslim Brotherhood to build up and all the other opposition yeah. groups because, yeah. if, excuse me, he said we shouldn't do that because if you allow it to happen right now, the Muslim Brotherhood is clearly going to win. Absolutely. That was the point. Absolutely. He said you should allow the other groups to build yeah. up. Yeah. No one listens to that advice. You get a Muslim Brotherhood victory and the army, the generals obviously aren't going to accept that. No, no. I mean, we've been advocating from day one, don't go to election, mm -hmm. don't have that. A two to three year transitionary uh, period. At least, I, I was advocating six to seven year yeah. transitional period. Which is probably it's, still it's, not enough. Really not enough to allow for mm -hmm. political parties, secular and otherwise, to develop because there was mm -hmm. no competition to mm -hmm. the Muslim Brotherhood. None. It was only two armies again to win the mm -hmm. election. Mm -hmm. And then what way now we know the what actually happened. Yes. Well, I want to thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, it was an interesting this, conversation. This, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. It was uh, fun. <laughs> I'm happy that I was able finally to get into the city and uh, a great, to meet with a you. Great. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.